Welcome to another episode of Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Amy is not with us right now. She uh, is still going to be out for this episode and maybe another one or two, uh, but she will be coming back, I promise you. Um, And I was actually really sad that she wasn't around for this episode because I had such a great time and this was such a timely and relevant uh, conversation. Uh, Today we're talking with uh, Dr. Ethan Keitel, who is the uh, chair of the history department at Fresno State. Uh, He happens to be an expert on two areas that are really relevant for us right now. One, uh, he's done some research in the Spanish flu uh, that took, or the Spanish flu's effect on Fresno. Um, he's been writing some amazing pieces about that recently. But also, uh, his more regular and broader research interests are in the history of slavery and statues and how we think about uh, race history in the United States. Uh, some fascinating stuff he's written for uh, publications like The Atlantic, The New York Times, and many others. Uh, this was an awesome conversation. Um, if this is your first time hearing about Dr. Keitel, uh, it is amazing uh, that he is here in Fresno teaching the future history teachers of the Central Valley. So please listen to this episode all the way through. Uh, we get to some amazing topics, and I sure learned a lot. Let's go meet Dr. Keitel. How, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Uh, good question. If I'm eating out in, in normal times, non-COVID times, um, uh, I would say I probably spend most of my time um, eating it from the food trucks at Gazebo Gardens. I'm a big fan uh, of the beer garden at Gazebo Garden. Pretty much a regular there almost every Friday or Saturday. Um, uh, for most of the year, even when it's cold, I'll go there. But otherwise, um, uh, if I... I'm going for a more upscale restaurant. I think uh, I'm a huge fan of the Annex. Um, yeah, yep. I want um, uh, tacos. Uh, there's so many great places you can go. Um, I, I am um, particularly fond of Don Pepe's. Uh, not so much for its atmosphere, but um, I think some of the, their pastor tacos and their spicy shrimp uh, tacos are, are, you can't really beat them. Um, uh, recently started going to Little Fat Dumpling quite a bit, which is up in okay. the northern section of town, although there's supposed to be one opening in the tower, which is closer to where I live. Uh, so I'm hoping that will open um, once we uh, get beyond our current pandemic. Do you have any favorite food trucks in particular? Uh, let's see. There's so many. I mean, there's a, quite a few taqueria, taco trucks that, that I could name. Um, Let's see. I, I would say uh, Meltdown. Meltdown uh, oh, yes. is one of yep. they're they're regular at, at Gazebo and other places around town. I really like them um, for their sandwiches and also for their um, Kung Pao Brussels sprouts. Their Kung Pao Brussels sprouts are really good, especially if you like spicy things. Uh, Gastro Grill also um, mm-hmm. uh, is is one that I'm a fan of. Um, uh, and then you know, just a slew of, of different uh, good taco trucks, both at Gazebo and elsewhere. Gotcha. And you're, you're not originally from Fresno, are you? I'm not. I, I've lived here uh, for quite a while now. In fact, I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life. Uh, really? But, uh, that's partly because uh, my parents moved around a fair amount when I was young and I've moved around since 
uh, a reasonable amount. But I've lived here since uh, 2007, so we're, we're to 20, uh, 13 years now. Um, uh, so it uh, seems like a long time for me, at least, maybe not for some of you. Are you a native? Uh, no, I'm actually a transplant as well. A lot, a lot of us are, <laughs> if yeah, I'm right. finding that's out. Right. Um, so before 2007, were you still in North Carolina at that point? Um, no, I was briefly, my um, wife and I were briefly in South Carolina. I went to graduate school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We both did. Um, and we were, uh, she is an academic like me, a historian as well. We met in graduate school there. We moved to South Carolina, to Charleston, South Carolina, where we lived for a couple of years, um, from 2005 to 2007. And then in 2007, we both got tenure track jobs at Fresno State. So we looked up where Fresno was on a map <laughs> and came out and visited, and we've been here ever since. And you discovered dry heat versus humidity. And That's right. even, though we ha even though you saw those uh, triple digits, once you experienced that dry heat, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to go back. <laughs> not, yeah, I, I certainly would, tr I would take our summers over south, summers in the deep south any day of the week. Um, you know, yes. 105 and, and uh, no humidity versus 90 and humid, it's not even, it's not a comparison. Um, okay. So, so I definitely uh, prefer summers out here to summers that we had in low country South Carolina where it's just it's sticky and awful. Oh, it's just, and people that have never been out there all that much, at least during the summertime, they have no idea. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I have visited family in North Carolina as a kid and we went in the summer when I had school off as a kid. And I just remember getting off the plane and thinking, are we in Hawaii? Like what, what, like I can barely yeah. breathe. Like what, what, what is this? And I, I honestly don't understand how people, I mean, I guess it's acclimation is part of it. Acclimation, air conditioning. Yes, <laughs> um, absolutely. You know, uh, both of those things, yeah. Okay. Well, I was, I was talking to someone before we started this podcast, and I was bragging about that I was bringing you on because you seem to be have the most amazing intersection of interests these days, um, at least your research interest, which is an ongoing thing for your mm -hmm. career, mm -hmm. but also yeah. in, the, in the pandemic. And I want, you know, originally I was planning to start this podcast by talking about uh, Spanish flu and COVID stuff, but uh, given the crisis that's happening in our uh, society, it would uh, it seems it behooves us to to start there rather than sure, uh, with sure. the pandemic. Yeah. And so my first question is is really about uh, interpersonal relationships, and uh, we all have family members that we've been debating with. I've been debating with my dad. Uh, I know. I imagine there's other people that have been doing the same thing. Um, sure, and sure. And it, it seems to center around some, some philosophical disagreements. Um, I, I, I read a book, which, name, which the name I can't, I can't remember at this moment. I, I should have written it down in my notes, but um, it talked about, uh, this book talked about the three political frames for how we think about or how we discuss politics. And there's kind of a conservative frame where you see uh, the world is either civilization or barbarism. And then you, there's another frame where you see the world is, you know, op the oppressed and the oppressors. And mm -hmm. it feels like a lot of our conversations are kind of stuck in these loops where we're talking past each other. Mm -hmm. And one of the central focal points of that is the phrase black lives matter. Um, I am sure you've heard it's, uh, the retort to that, uh, which is all lives matter, that phrase. Um, and so, 
given your background and how you understand race in America and the history of race in America, um, how would you try to mediate a conversation uh, between someone that believed the former and then someone that believed the latter um, and try to get them to see each other? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and it's certainly, I'm sure, a conversation that's happening uh, across the country, whether it's virtually as we're having our conversation or, or at the dinner table. Um, I, I suppose I, the, the first thing I would say is it, it's, it's folks who respond to the cry of Black Lives Matter, a cry that reflects you know, a deep pattern of injustice, racial injustice that that's, you know, dates back to the founding and before the founding of this country. Um, uh, what those who respond and say all lives matter, I think are, are, are really missing that historical context, missing the, the realities of life for uh, many African-Americans today. Um, but they're also, you know, they're, they're missing the what Black Lives Matter is saying. It's not not saying that all lives matter. Right. Uh, no one who believes in um, uh, is a supporter of Black Lives Matter don't, don't think that all lives are equally important. What they're saying is uh, black lives are not being treated like other lives. And all the data uh, supports that. Uh, all the evidence we have, and that's historical, but that's also in the present. Um, uh, you know, a good analogy that uh, I came across recently on, on the web, but I think it's, it might be something one could deploy if you were talking to a family member who, who responded to Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter is, um, you know, when we've had crises and moments and um, uh, horrible events, um, we've often come out with these slogans like Black Lives Matter. Take um, after the bombings in Boston. What did Boston, what is the slogan that Boston embraces? Boston strong. And New York didn't come back with, what about New York strong, right? Or the rest of the country didn't say, all America strong, right? We all understood what Boston strong meant was Boston was going through an awful moment. And by, by rallying to that call, by echoing that call, um, uh, or by wearing your New York fire department hat after 9-11, it didn't mean you were, you know, saying something negative about Fresno's fire department, right? It, you were, it meant you were cognizant of the specific um, event um, or set of events if it comes to Black Lives Matter and the specific challenges and you were un you were willing to acknowledge that. And so to me, that's the, the, the most, the best analogy to kind of explain that Black Lives Matter and, and, and All Lives Matter aren't, aren't diametrically opposed, um, uh, at least from the perspective of those who, who embrace this slogan of Black Lives Matter. They see All Lives Matter, but those that are most in jeopardy right now and certainly in these uh, say moments in terms of uh, interactions uh, with uh, police officers are African American lives, and so I think that's what that's how I would respond to that. Yeah, it, it is challenging. I mean, I think um, it is a lot of. There might be a generational component to this too, um, mm -hmm. as well, um, and there's also there also may be a tone component to it as well to get people to listen. You know, it's it's. It's it's hard sometimes because when you see something when you see a building on fire you don't calmly you know you don't calmly say the building's on fire you know um, but if but right, if right. if the person can't see that the building is on fire or it's out of their purview because they just haven't been around it so I've you know I I'm not defending that point of view I'm just merely trying to understand sure. the best way to convey this to people to be diplomatic. I sure, guess. and 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 I, I think you're right. And, and being able to have civil conversations and be diplomatic and to try to convince 
you know, uh, those who may not see this, um, uh, I think is, is worthwhile. I, I do think um, uh, it is, you know, telling that when there was, um, uh, let's say, some violence or looting or things that have happened in conjunction with uh, a number of the protests, which have been overwhelmingly peaceful and nonviolent here in Fresno and across the country, but there was um, looting and, and other things that have happened in certain cities in certain moments. We don't know exactly who was doing it in most cases, um, uh, but you know, a lot of the response to that has been, well, why not just peaceful protest? Uh, yet when someone like Colin Kaepernick uh, couldn't have been more peaceful and measured in his demonstrations of taking a knee um, during the national anthem, uh, that was outrageous, that was unacceptable, that, that was beyond the pale. Um, uh, now you have um, the NFL commissioner coming back and saying, you know what, we were wrong. Um, taking the knee isn't okay, that's the right thing to do. Uh, so I do think those conversations can happen and people can change their mind. I mean, um, you know, Mitt Romney, um, who in 2012 was a Republican uh, presidential candidate, he's echoing Black Lives Matter while marching um, uh, in Washington, D.C. just a few days ago. So uh, people do change their minds um, and, and he's doing so in this sort of shadow of his own father who marched in the 1960s in civil rights protests. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I think it's a special moment when NASCAR officially bans Confederate flags from its events. You know, that's a sign of the, the times have changed. That's right. Um, so we're going to transition to talk about uh, historical memory a little bit in sure. the context of statues. Um, so last Tuesday, a statue of a slave owner named Robert Milligan uh, was taken down by a group of protesters in East London. Uh, Two days before that, uh, during a Black Lives Matter protest, a statue of Winston Churchill uh, had spray painted uh, is a racist at the bottom. Um, these, these are kind of just two symbols of a larger movement to attack infrastructure that represents oppression. Mm -hmm. um, a few years ago, I read a book called In the Shadow of uh, Statues, um, in which the subtitle is is powerful as well. Uh, a white Southerner confronts history. Um, the and in the book, the former mayor of New Orleans, uh, Mitch, and then say his name for me again, so Andrew. I get it right. Landrew. 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 Um, he sees Confederate statues as obstacles to moving a city forward, mm -hmm. um, and he really highlights the the kind of the two divergent views of the Civil War. One is being re reconciliatory and the other being about emancipation. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just going to read a quote that uh, from an article you wrote in the Atlantic a few years ago. Um, you say the statues also bear mute witness to the Jim Crow culture that venerated men who initiated a bloody civil war to protect an humane institution. If they make the public uneasy, that is because the past is uncomfortable taking down Confederate flags, but allowing properly contextualized Confederate monuments to stand strikes the right balance between promoting um, a complete picture of the past and respecting the needs of the present, unquote. Now, given all this, I have a few questions. Um, first, what do you think of these cathartic removals of statues by protesters and how governments are responding to them, like the governor of uh, Virginia trying to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee, which was actually blocked by a judge just today. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. And then second, why, uh, why is the former uh, mayor of New Orleans 
incorrect in his assessment that statues prevent society from moving forward. And finally, uh, why not put these historical pieces in museums? Why, did, why not take them out of our landscape and put them in uh, a place where you can really deliver context? All great questions. And um, I'm gonna throw you for a bit of a curveball. Um, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, since I wrote that, I co-wrote that with my wife and better half and colleague, Blaine Roberts in 2015, uh, I've changed my mind. Oh, wow, um, okay. Uh, and um, and I, I've done that in print actually several times, including most recently in, in 2018 uh, in oh. New York Times. Um, well, that's my, that's my apology then, I must no, have no, missed no. that. It, it is, that is, comes up when you, uh, it's not the first time I've gotten that question. I'm happy to talk about how I've changed my mind. Yeah, that would be a very interesting. I'd love to hear um, that. So uh, the, let, let me just, maybe first, let me lay out the argument we were making in 2015 and actually some of the context, which I think is really relevant given um, a very dubious anniversary we're about to hit next week on June 17th um, uh, of, of this year. Um, June 17th, uh, 2020 is the fifth anniversary of the Emanuel Massacre. Uh, the shooting at uh, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, which a white supremacist who I um, recently decided I no longer need to say his name, um, uh, but a man who, a young boy almost, who- who Looks like uh, a boy. Yeah, he did, he did does. Uh, he's in jail, in jail for murder, for murdering nine African-American par uh, parishioners, worshipers, um, uh, as well as their minister um, at Mother Emanuel, a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina. He did it to say, as he said, is to start a race war. He did it because Mother Emanuel was um, a, a critical place to the black church, but also black history and Charleston being a critical city to black history. Um, he did it because he believes that he wishes we had never, the Confederacy hadn't lost. We still had slavery, thinks African-Americans are destroying white culture and there's a, a larger war so uh of, of black against white this is his fantasy white supremacist world that he created and, and commits this heinous act of violence and in response to that almost immediately you see a backlash uh, a righteous backlash against confederate symbols and um this is what we were writing about when that article came out in uh i think it was still june late june of, of 2015 weeks less two weeks uh, or less um yeah after. june 25th 2015. <laughs> couldn't yep. quite remember exactly but i knew it was so i mean eight nine days eight days after that shooting uh, and things were moving so fast at that point already um uh south carolina which uh to that point since from the early 60s until uh, uh 2015 they flew on their state uh, grounds where it flew changed over time but they still on the, flew on their state grounds the confederate battle uh, was put up during the civil rights movement um, as an anti-civil rights movement demonstration, also during the, the centennial of the American Civil War. But it's put up as, as saying that we, we still believe in the, the vision of the Confederacy. We support this. It's a lost cause symbol. It's a white supremacist symbol. And it, because Dylan Roof, I said his name, I'm sorry, because the white supremacist um, uh, was a very, very public supporter, not just of white supremacy, but of the Confederate flag, and a bunch of photos were quickly found of him holding a Confederate flag. Um, what African Americans and some of their allies have known for generations very quickly started to become clear to more Americans. Uh, and that is the, the, the Confederate flag is a symbol of 
racial oppression, of white supremacy, of values that we don't share today or that most of us don't share today, um, that it's inappropriate to fly them on public land, to fly them in a state house. And so Confederate flags and then Confederate monuments start to come under fire in the summer of 2015. Uh, and this is something we were fully supportive of, but we wrote in our, this article um, because at that point, our argument was we should think about Confederate monuments and Confederate flags somewhat different. The Confederate flags, especially being flown um, by state governments or on state land or in public land, um, public places, um, let's say public squares, um, that they are carrying kind of the weight of authority, right? They're, they're carrying the weight of the state government, of a local government saying, saying this is what we value, this is who we are. Um, and our argument was that Confederate monuments, at least those that aren't on public grounds, those aren't that, that aren't in front of courthouses is one of the distinctions we make in this article. Those aren't that, that aren't clearly um, representing the state at that moment. We're, we're somewhat something different. Um, what I want to be clear on, and then I'll get to how we changed, <laughs> is our argument was not that Confederate monuments were good history or things that we should admire. Those are typically the defenses of that, that say a Confederate monument supporter would put up. This is a testament to our, the sacrifice of our forefathers that Lee and um, Grant or the common soldier were, were great heroes. That is not what we were arguing at all. What we were arguing is that they are evidence, historical evidence of the Jim Crow South, of a South that went, that through, that by the hundred erected these sorts of monuments um, uh, as they were passing laws that were disfranchising African-Americans, as they were passing Jim Crow laws that were turning African-Americans into second citizens, as they were lynching African-Americans two or three uh, a week, they erected these testaments to um, uh, soldiers who fought in a battle for white supremacy. And so to us as historians, and particularly as historians of historical memory, these were artifacts of this Jim Crow campaign. So our argument was the best thing we can do is take down anything that's like a flag, rename things that are named after Confederates, but that keep these monuments as a reminder of what they stood for and, and this Jim Crow regime that erected them. Uh, that, that, and keep them, and the second part of it was contextualize them put up signs, put up explanatory plaques, things that tell you what they are, tell you that, 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 that they were what they are, which is historical lies. They're evidence of the Jim Crow South, but they're lies about the Civil War because they, 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 um, they basically uh, put forth what historians call lost cause, the tenets of the lost cause, arguments that the Confederates were, were far more brave and far more valiant than Union soldiers, or arguments that the Civil War was not about slavery, was not about racial oppression, was not, it was instead about high-minded things like, like constitutional liberty and states' rights and low taxes and things like that. So our argument was Confederate monuments are disturbing, but they're also, they're disturbing historical artifacts. Um, uh, and that we shouldn't, that it's dangerous just to destroy them because we might lose a sense of that, of what those artifacts can teach us about the Jim Crow South. Since then, um, I, 
and I will I will try I'll try to be a little bit more succinct in explaining this. I for a variety of reasons, uh, both Lane and I have changed our minds about this argument. Um, uh, part of it is that there is in subsequent years there were attempts to create the sort of contextualization we wanted that often didn't get anywhere. They would get they would get caught up in, in, in committee and we were involved in the committees to start to do some of this. We were involved in an early committee to draft language for a monument, massive monument to John C. Calhoun in, in Charleston, South Carolina. And that never got anywhere. Um, uh, we ultimately drafted a, a number of drafts for, for, for language contextualizing it, but that ultimate the, the ultimate language we could not get a quorum to agree on. The city council basically punted on it, and it's five years later. Um, yep. uh, other times, contextualizing didn't quite work. They would create somewhat milk toast um, uh, contextualizing plaques that don't really tell you anything. Um, uh, and so we we subsequently seen efforts to do this and it didn't work. That's one reason. A bigger reason, though, is that as this became a controversy as folks like Mayor Landrieu took down monuments. Um, uh, we found ourselves, one, watching that happen. I can vividly remember watching on um, uh, a feed online of uh, the monument, uh, the Lee Monument, the last of the four in New Orleans that are taken down and being kind of like blown away at how powerful it was watching it being taken down and listening to Mayor Landrieu's speech, which if any of your listeners, um, if you want to read a powerful speech about the meaning of Confederate monuments, um, uh, uh, pull up, it was reprinted by the Atlantic and by the New York Times, read his speech, it was powerful. And and I think witnessing that to me made it clear that, you know, while my kind of the historian in me doesn't want to see artifacts removed um, uh, because I think their place, the fact that they were in the center of a town square, that ubiquity matters and tells you how important it was to the Jim Crow South. Um, I think the cathartic nature of removing it and just observing that meant a lot to me. Um, listening more and more to the, um, and we, were, we, we admit this in our original uh, piece from 2015, that, that, that uh, certainly there are plenty of people who are, especially African-Americans in the South today, who have to walk by these monuments every day, who are deeply offended by that. And so we, we were very, self, very conscious of trying to, to, to pay attention to, what, to their desires and balance that. I think I, I, I came around um, to, to seeing that that should outweigh the, the, the historical, um, the, the need for history to keep these in place and, and contextualize them as artifacts. Um, uh, and then the most, maybe the most important thing is the fact that these monuments became totems for a resurgent white supremacist movement. And I think you see that most clearly in Charlottesville in um, 2017. It's all of this, all of this horrible stuff is blending together into just a four-year period of, yeah, right. that we'll never forget. <laughs> well, we can all remember that time where, where white supremacists marched en masse, and they were rallying in Charlottesville around protecting a Confederate monument there, a Confederate monument that was under, under threat of removal. It wasn't being removed yet. And that reinforced to me that I was creating, and we were creating an artificial divide between when these monuments were corrected and what they erected early 20th century and what they were continuing to do. Jim Crow, for the most part, the most obvious forms of Jim Crow were gone. Um, so yeah. ultimately I, I came, to see, came to see them as symbols of a resurgent 
um, uh, white supremacist movement that, that we can't just leave as past artifacts. They're past artifacts, but they remain relevant today. And so for all of those reasons, um, over time, um, I, I lost my kind of the, the appeal of keeping them as historic artifacts and interpreting them for people to see um, uh, lost its appeal for me. And now, I mean, mostly I would argue that local communities should be able to make up their mind on, on what they do about them, that experts from the outside shouldn't be coming, scholars like me shouldn't come out and come into a community and tell them what to do. Um, but, but, I, but I certainly side more with the, the, the side, I come down more on the side of these, these we're not going, we can, we can interpret these in museums. We can interpret them in graveyard, monument graveyards. Um, uh, but also, I, I, I've, what I, I do think that, that one of the things that's happened over the last five years, this is something I've been thinking a lot about this week, given that we're at the five-year anniversary of the Emanuel shooting, is I think, and the fact that so many of these monuments have come under assault in response to the, these Black Lives Matter protests, the Floyd um, murder and other recent murders that have on the surface, nothing to do with these monuments on the surface. I think the fact that so many people have rallied into vandalizing them, removing them in some cases, calling for their removal, uh, underscores how we've progressed in our understanding of the meaning of these monuments over the last five years. That what we didn't want to lose in our piece in 2015 is the point that these are white supremacist monuments. And I think most Americans, or a lot of Americans at least, get that now. Um, they get that a Confederate flag is a symbol of violence and racial oppression. Uh, that wasn't true before the Emanuel Massacre. I would argue that the, the, the aftermath of the shooting, uh, maybe one of the, 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 the real um, tribute to the victims of the Emanuel Massacre is our inc increasingly cleansed public landscape. Absolutely. And uh, I- You dug I, into I, something I'm thinking about. No, 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 it's, 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 this is what I wanted to hear the most. And, um, you know, I think it's, there's that balance of reasonable versus ideal, right? You know, uh, ideally we, we would love there, you know, as history teachers, we would love to have these things around to remind people of, you know, our story and where we've come from, mm -hmm. um, and to have these great contextual educational, you know, things surrounding them that people could come and learn. But right. in reality, people just, they, they know what they mean. You know, right. they, they already know what they mean and, or think they do. Well, um, and or me, they, yeah. yeah, go ahead. You're right. Let me just quick, give a quick, another quick example. So um, uh, from first, uh, the uh, North Carolina, University of North Carolina, the Confederate statue there is Silent Sam. Um, what I should say was Silent Sam, because Silent Sam no longer exists. And so as Blaine and I were rethinking um, our position on a lot of this in 2017 and then into 2018, um, uh, right at the beginning of the school year in 2018, protesters, student protester, protesters there in Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, who had been calling for this sort of contextualization of Silent Sam for five, six, seven years. I can't remember exactly, but, but a good number. They had been working for this, pushing the university for this and getting nowhere. Um, they ultimately got so frustrated uh, with this that they tore down Silent Sam uh, and pulled off this this you know 13 foot metal statue, pulled him down. Um, uh, then he was removed and taken by the university, put in a warehouse somewhere. And 
the stone on which Silent Sam sat remained. And so what um, Blaine and I did is we wrote in an op-ed in the New York Times the day after this, that the university should leave that stone, that they, that, that they should leave that um, uh, base uh, of the monument as a sort of reflection of how this lost cause vision of these monuments has been toppled, right? That, that it will be a reminder for people who would walk across campus and say, what happened there? What, was there a monument once there? And they could have plaques to tell this story, but it would be, it would show how bankrupt that these, that these empty pedestals, I think that's what we called it, empty pedestals would and demonstrate the bankruptcy of the lost cause, the bankruptcy of these monuments. Um, ultimately, the university decided not to follow our advice and they removed this, the pedestal as well. And now they reseeded the grass and it's like it never existed. Yeah. And in some ways that's a loss, but what's missing from that vision of it being a loss is that in the years leading up to the destruction of this and in the aftermath, that space had become a place of, of violent uh, um, interaction between protesters and sons of Confederate veterans uh, and other groups who were defending these monuments, who often showed up intimidated, brought weapons, there were sometimes fist fights. This had become uh, this, 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 this space um, for um, uh, nastiness, this, this awful place. It, so ultimately removing that pedestal, even if it would teach a historical lesson, I think um, removing it uh, removed a, a, a sort of a, a symbol and a site of division in the town. It no longer gave the, the Sons of Confederate Veterans a rallying point. And so for that, as, as well as for removing a reminder for, for, for people uh, of what it once, what once stood there, I, I think those are both real wins, real goods. Yeah, it's, so, it's such a complicated topic because, you know, I'm thinking about this in context of like different governments that pre did pretended things never happened. Like if you think about uh, Turkey and the Armenian genocide, right. you know, that's such a complicated situation where, you know, it's almost, you, you almost appreciate the, the blatancy of white supremacy in that, you know, they will remind you that this existed versus a government that will deny it, you right. know? So it's, it's, it, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's an easy answer. And I, I appreciate you being honest and how you've talked about you guys moving positions because uh, oftentimes people will just get stuck on one and then they won't want to change you know won't want to portray that they've learned something or modified right, right. you know and i think it's it's a good intellectual exercise to do it publicly um i'm gonna i'm gonna move us along because we have a few different things i want to talk about sure. um a few years ago i read one of the most fascinating and brilliantly written articles in the same uh magazine where you wrote the article that we just referenced um Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote an article uh, that argued uh, it's called the case for reparations um and it was a fascinating uh indictment almost of uh, something that's missing from society that could be a healing tool and just a few days ago uh David Brooks who is a, a centrist or conservative leaning commentator um also wrote a case for reparations um, given kind of your background and the way you look at uh, race relations and the history of race in the United States, do you see um, reparations as a policy proposal that could remedy some of this history? Or uh, do you feel like it's too complex of an issue that could be solved with something like a policy of reparations? 
I don't, I, we've solved, I don't know that it's more complex than any other major um, issue that we've faced as a government from, uh, maybe not solved, but but faced uh, from, and, and tried to solve, whether it be things like social security or, or healthcare. Um, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't see it as, um, uh, overwhelmingly complex, so complex that we shouldn't take it on. Uh, I, I, I'm aware of Brooks's piece, although it, it's um, the, the specifics uh, I don't remember. I, I do know um, Coates's essay quite well. I, I too found it a, a brilliant piece, uh, and I've assigned it actually in, in a number of my classes uh, for for years. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I look forward to assigning it uh, going forward. I actually found that my students, when I first started assigning it five, six years ago, uh, they were, um, they bought his argument, but they always foundered on um, the uh, impracticality of <laughs> reparations, right? They, they were yeah. easily convinced that reparations were, were is morally, or are morally justified. And I think unless you are willing to put on, unless you um, uh, willingly put on blinders to our past, um, you, you, you would, it's, it's impossible not to, to see that, that reparations in some form are, are morally justified. Uh, how they would be administered maybe is a different story. And that's where my, I think a lot of my students often got caught up. This couldn't possibly work. Who would we give it to them? How, how much money would they give? Um, uh, one thing I was taken with by in in Coase's essay is his argument first and foremost that reparations certainly can involve monetary payments, involve money, but that doesn't have they they we should think of reparations more broadly. That we should think of historical uh, doing historical justice, understanding and um, taking a full unmeasured account of what happened in the past is a first step along the way. It's part of reparations. You know, he talked about. Um, say, uh, the South Africa's Truth and Re Reconciliation Commission. Uh, he talked about uh, West Germany's uh, attempts to finally come uh, to grips with the Holocaust and how early generations of Germans in the 50s and the late 40s and the 50s didn't want to take any responsibility for the Holocaust, but how the country as a whole very self-consciously tried to and did um, start to teach about the Holocaust, teach that this was something that we are culpable for, that we did in a way that, that I don't think America, um, uh, certainly there are plenty of teachers, I'm sure you do, I do, um, plenty of teachers who teach like this, but, but a lot of Americans are woefully ignorant of um, uh, the abuses of our forefathers and maybe even the abuses of us still uh, today. Um, uh, when speaking about reparations in the African-American community, this doesn't stop with slavery in the end of slavery, extends well beyond that um, through all sorts of discriminatory practices, things like redlining, um, uh, that, that have real world consequences. Um, uh, that, and you see these in all your measures today, just, you know, disproportionate um, uh, wealth uh, distributions. Um, so I think reparations are certainly something if you had asked me five years ago in the same way I would have said that there, there's no way that New Orleans would have taken down its Lee statue, I would have said we will ever talk seriously about 
reparations um, in America. But you know, just a, was it two, was it last summer or the summer before where where we were, were having hearings? I think it was last summer that we were having hearing hearing congressional hearings about the question of reparations. Um, I, so I think it's it, um, what form it will take. I don't know. Um, is is it something that is morally justified, and should we be paying attention to it and supportive of it? Um, you know, absolutely. And the fact that we have major Democratic candidates who are backing reparations in the Democratic primary, at least, um, I think illustrates that this is an issue that that people are finally starting to take seriously. Yeah, it strikes me as quite similar. The uh, you know, it's kind of similar to the. You know, the conversations about protests when you jump right to the looting conversation before you uh, hit on the, you know, hit on the why are these happening? You know, it seems like the same thing to talk about, you know, how are we going to implement this before we even agree on that, whether we should or not, you know, and, and if we agree that we should, then, you know, the logistics for how it gets done. You know that that's a second secondhand conversation, but I don't think the the latter of the logistics should inform the former of the principal decision for doing something. I, and I, but but amazingly, it does. And I think not yeah. just for people. I mean, it's easy to say, oh well, uh, you know, uh, uh, white supremacist or a fiscal conservative, you know, uh, hyper conservative person is never going to consider this. But 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 I applied plenty of students who are very would be very very sympathetic to the idea, but. Like I said, when they read Coates' piece, that's what they went to. Immediately, you know, it's, it's, it, it is the strength to sort of raise that issue. And, and my hope is that things like the Black Lives Matter movement um, are, are informing people and in, in changing their mind on things like this and, and that they'll be more able to see the long-term continuity of, of uh, racial injustice and that as a result of that, the, 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 the even more of a necessity for reparations. And it's not just about what happened 150 years ago. Although it can be that too, and and it's never, it's never, I never have a hard time talking to my students about how um, how wrong it was that the vast majority of formerly enslaved people um, uh, got nothing after the Civil War. They, that's easy to convince people of, um, uh, but but pushing it forward, it becomes a little bit harder. I mean, you can delineate so many different things. You know, I I saw uh, on some some social media, a picture of a woman who was the first uh, African-American girl to attend uh, a, a desegregated school um, uh-huh. and it showed her picture and it, it showed that her, she just turned 65. And so when you think about, you know, how, how recent things are, and I just remember, I don't know I if you listened Ruby to this. Bridges. I think it might've been Ruby Bridges from New Orleans, who maybe yeah. our next, my next book topics. <laughs> there we go. Uh, um, but I was, I was thinking about that too, like in context of, Malcolm Gladwell did this amazing podcast where he talked about, uh, you know, Brown versus board and desegregation and how after that, basically, you know, uh, all the African-American schools, those teachers were laid off um, as kids went to the white schools, you know, so there's all of these, you know, kind of, uh, I don't want the word is like a, you know, uh, unforeseen consequences, unforeseen consequences, you know, collateral damage of a lot of these. Yeah. So, um, let's talk about police departments for a moment. Now, as you know, some of the early law enforcement entities in the United States were created to track down runaway slaves. Right, um, and, and since then, police departments have been used to enforce Jim Crow laws, segregations, put down riots in major cities across the United States, and even most recently in the last 10 years to enforce, stop, uh, enforce uh, the policy of stop and frisk. 
Yep. Now, um, there's a debate going on using uh, about the phrase bad apples. Um, and this is often used by police departments to kind of distance themselves from uh, these patterns of crimes that are committed by police officers. Um, and then on the other side, you have this kind of uh, broader ideology of systematic racism that's promulgated by Black Lives Matter activists and many others. Um, mm -hmm. So do you think... Um, First of all, what do you think about that uh, debate between bad apples and systematic racism? And then secondly, uh, do you think given this complicated history, trust could be rebuilt between black communities and police? Oh, the, the second one's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I know. I, 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 uh, it's I meant think, to, it's, these are just meant for you to kind of yeah, share sure. your thoughts generally. Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right in your, in your lead up there, you underscored a point that I would, I would as a historian, particularly as a most of my historical expertise is in the 19th century um, and the history of slavery, for instance. It's, it's impossible to separate our, the, our police force from this vision of policing African-American communities in particular. That, that, you know, certainly in the South, slave um, uh, patrols, that, that's, 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 that was the only old police force that they were around, that, that were around. You know, there were militias uh, that often were exactly the same people who were on um, the slave patrol. Uh, and so uh, this is, it's, yes, there are worse apples, <laughs> but systemic racism is there. It's ever present. It's there not just among police. I think what police have is one, um, a lot of the power to do great wrong. As you can see from George Floyd, in just a matter of minutes, the power to do great wrong um, they have very powerful unions in many cities that have, in a few cases, certainly, and I'm a believer in unions, I'm a big believer in our faculty union, um, but, but, and they certainly do protect people and, and, and when, when um, uh, you know, better salaries, and better benefits for their, for their members, but, but police unions have done a lot of bad things in terms of covering up the worst um, uh, offenders. And, and, that's true of all unions. At times, they will cover up, um, they will protect the worst. Um, uh, right, but, but, but not, to, inter not to interrupt you, but I, I, someone said that to me recently, and I said, you know, um, when, when a, a, a K through 12 teacher like myself, when, when uh, another K 12 teacher sexually assaults a student, you know, the union doesn't come out and say, well, we're going to defend this person. You know, it, right. we have to look into this. We have to invest. No, it's immediately handed over to the law enforcement, you know, and, and the but the same, the, the same doesn't apply. Yeah. You know, because they're the law enforcement. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 So, so unlike say in teachers um, or in the case of a faculty, um, uh, you know, some sort of um, uh, egregious behavior that happens from a university faculty member at Fresno State, the union will protect them, but once they've crossed the legal line, they can't do that. I think right. the difference, you're absolutely right, the difference is the police union, um, uh, they are the law. Um, yeah. uh, certainly there's internal investigations that can happen and things like that, but they very rarely happen. I mean, it's not a surprise that our popular culture often makes internal affairs and internal investigators and cops, they're the worst fingers, right? You know, even our popular culture is bought into this, um, uh, this notion that the police are, are infallible or, 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 or heroes. And there are plenty of heroic police officers and they, they often put their lives on the line. And I don't mean to discredit that or, 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 or dis, uh, dismiss that. Um, but to, to chalk up these sorts of um, regular and 
horribly dangerous violations as, as the work of a few bad apples is to just put on blinders to realities, present day and past and historic rea realities that, that these are systemic problems um, and that things like the police union cover that up, um, uh, undercut. I mean, there's evidence um, even in, I think, I only know a little bit about this, but even in Minneapolis, I think uh, the most recent police chief um, uh, tried to clean up some things and ran afoul of the of, of the, the police union and the head of the police union, who not uh, inconsequently um, uh, is a you know huge Trump supporter, um, uh, has has papered over these sorts of abuses of power um, for for a long long time. And so yeah, I think this is a big issue. Can can this relationship, as you, I think you put it, um, between the African American community and police forces? be repaired? I don't know. Uh, it is, I do think the fact that there are some police forces that have a reasonable, if not significant, uh, minority presence, a number of non-white, African-American, Latino, Asian-American, and others um, members, I think that can help. Um, but we all know that, that certainly they can fall prey to the same sort of stereotypes about African-American men, let's say, um, as anyone else. Um, but maybe they can also, being members of, say, communities, help to, to build bridges. I don't want to say that, that, that change can't happen. Change happens, and change sometimes happens really quickly. Um, but, but this is something that's baked in in America. And changing it is, is um, it's going to be hard. It's going to take some real, it's going to take some real self-critical work on the part of police departments themselves. Uh, and maybe police unions um, um, themselves. And I certainly think we have to stop the militarization of our police forces and giving them weapons um, of, of occupation effectively. And, and um, uh, so I certainly would begin there. Yeah. You know, I often say to people in these past few weeks, uh, as these Minneapolis, uh, the situation in Minneapolis escalated, um, you know, if if there's a sign that there's a systematic problem, it's the fact that people from Minnesota caused all this. Because if you've ever met someone from Minnesota, they're the most polite people in the world. We have uh, some friends that are from from that area, and they often describe sitting at uh, stop signs uh, where the Minnesotans will, will beckon the other person to go first and they'll sit there for 30 seconds, you know, in niceties trying to, trying to encourage the other person to step before them. You know, it, it, the Minnesotans are some of the nicest people around. And if, if this is a problem there, then it's, it's a sign that it's, you know, it's, it's a system problem more than. And off of politeness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so as a kind of a last stop on this, com uh, in terms of the race conversation. Um, so a lot of this, I tie back to education, you know, how we teach people about our history. Um, now I've seen some real bad textbooks in my day that have come through my classroom, uh, that have, uh, I even, I was one year I taught at a, a private religious school, um, and we got these uh, textbooks from Earl Roberts University that had published them. Um, and there was a whole big section in one of the chapters about um, how the Holy Spirit moved more in the South during the Civil War than the North. Um, and there were these waves of people being saved in the South. And, you know, uh, so, I, I, you know, what, what, and I, I can only imagine, you know, if, if that's what I was receiving in California, what textbooks look like in other places. So I guess my question is, is um, what, how, how, can, how can educators uh, 
better teach the history of this stuff in their classrooms? I know that's a big, another big question, but maybe just highlight a few, uh, highlight a few points that you would suggest or things that you would emphasize. Um, That is a big question. It's a hard one. Um, uh, Certainly what I would love to see more when it comes to say history, um, social science, social uh, social studies education is um, uh, from beginning to end more of an emphasis on, on, taking let's say just start with when 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 people are studying from teachers taking history classes um uh you know i i'm amazed by earlier generations of teachers and how many barely took a, a class in history uh, in their entire four years or, or didn't take any political science classes so um and then go into a classroom uh i think maybe equipped to uh with pedagogical theory or pedagogical practice but very little with content knowledge um uh, certainly with 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 modern up-to-date content knowledge um uh, so i i think it starts with um sort of the the training and education that teachers get uh, i do realize the challenges that k through 12 teachers face um in terms of having to live up to standards follow the standards um, state standards are often very um uh, inflexible and then i know that their challenges especially if you're particular school is being closely monitored and watched in terms of like how far you vary from 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 what your the prescribed curriculum you're supposed to follow um, uh, I think that teachers they go out of their way to teach students not just good up-to-date content but but also um, uh, critical thinking skills to be able to start to make their way through these things themselves um, is helpful. I do think that we are doing a better job as um, sort of an educational force more generally about um, uh, trying to build bridges, say, between universities and what's being produced at universities and um, K through 12 education. Uh, for a long time, I was involved with a variety of Teaching American History grants that we had at Fresno State, which connected teachers um, at the local uh, middle school and high school history teachers with faculty at Fresno State and we had seminars, quite a few got master's degrees as a result of master's degrees in history as a result of that. We went on um, uh, research and educational trips to various places. Um, I, I think all of that helps. Um, I do think that the, the, the web can some way, in some ways help um, in terms of it gives a lot more resources, a lot more primary source resources, for instance, to a teacher like you than say a teacher had even as uh, late as 1995. Uh, you can find it basically any primary source to teach any topic you want is readily available. But do you have the time? Do you have the, the training? Uh, do you know where to look? These are the challenges. Um, so so I, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. I, it's a real, real big issue. It's a real challenge. But I do think, I, I do feel confident that, you know, I, I mean, I, one of the things we do at Fresno State in the history department is we train the next generation of teachers, of social science teachers in the Valley. Um, uh, two thirds to three quarter of our majors, um, uh, that's where they're headed. And so I, I do feel that, that we're doing a better job today than maybe we were 20 or 30 years ago in, in, in making sure they have an update on understanding, say, of the history of slavery um, uh, or the history of reconstruction. Um, to, to be able to teach about things like reparations and understand um, uh, those sorts of things then. So I, I, I've maybe glass half full, I feel about that, that portion of it. 
Yeah, well, I, I as a product of the Cal State system, I went to San Francisco State for my undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have nothing but positive things to say about my faculty and what I walked away with. And, you know, it really is amazing in California, the, what, what you can get, the education you can get for the price tag uh, versus a lot of, you know, universities that are 10 times as much, you know, and I I think, uh, I think that's what, one of the things that makes California such an amazing place is our, our public university system is, is unparalleled. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, all right, we're about an hour mark. Do you do you have time to continue to talk about COVID? Yeah, or should yeah we? If okay. You want to. Okay. Uh, well, we'll keep it relatively brief. <laughs> um, so uh, recently, you uh, decided to write some articles um, about the Spanish flu. Yep. Um, there, you know, there's there's not a lot out there in terms of. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of news about what's going on in the world, but in terms of historical context, there's not a lot. I mean, the, the, the Barry book, uh, uh, I think his name's David Barry, right? David Barry, or I I can't. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, his, his big tome about the Spanish flu has been kind of the Bible for a lot of people. Uh, but you decided to make it, uh, make it local. Uh, why do you feel like it's important to uh, write these articles about Fresno and the Spanish flu? Right. Uh, well, how did I get into this? Uh, I, I, I've, even though most of my research to date has been on uh, 19th century, 20th century slavery, the South, or abolitionists in the North, I've always sort of had an interest in, or at least since I moved to Fresno, had an interest in what's been, what went on here, wanted to know what's, you know, understand the history of Fresno a little better. Um, and so, frankly, what I didn't start on this until um, we kind of went into shelter in place. Um, I, we, so that was mid-March, uh, mid-March, you know, we, schools shut down. My, my daughter's school shut down. Um, Fresno State moved to virtual. We, we went off campus. We all retreated to our house, which we've been in now for, for three months. And, uh, the first thing I did was, you know, which I think I do as a historian is I started to think, well, you know, how did how do we go through this? What what happened in the past in this sort of situation? And I knew about the the, the 1918 1919 flu pandemic, but yeah, in broad strokes. So one of the things I did is I, I read John Barry's book <laughs> um, to just get a broad sense of it, um, and read some plenty of articles and other things. But I, but I started looking and I had access to um, the Fresno Morning Republican, the Daily Newspaper, um, and so I decided I would just start reading issues. Um, I went. I didn't know initially when it hit, and so I had to do some searches, and I found out when it hit, and I just started tracking it. And you know, I, I would share out a few stories here and there on on for the first couple of days on Facebook and other social media venues, and people were like, "Wow, that's cool, that's interesting." And I said, "Well, maybe I'll just you know start keeping track of this." And I had a friend, a colleague who. Um, uh, is, is, is an ed- editor at a blog and was like, oh, you, if you want to publish those, you can publish them on my, our blog. And, and, and so then I started producing what I call uh, these dispatches from Fresno, where, where I try to follow what I say is in real time. That is, as we're going through our pandemic here, how did Fresno's a hundred couple years uh, ago go through their pandemic? So what was it like on day one? And, you know, so I, and then there, I kind of write them these days, about every week wasn't quite as uh, uniform early on. Uh, so I've written 12 of them. I actually have to write another one. <laughs> it becomes <laughs> almost a bit of a chore now, but I got to finish yeah. it out. Um, 
And so I've tracked over time. It started in early October, uh, Fresno's um, 1918 pandemic, and and in, in, it hit in two waves basically, and lasted. The first wave lasted through um, the the end of November. It faded away in early December, and then it very quickly resumed in a second wave that was from December to through January, and then by February it was it was mostly over. Although there's a, a third kind of mini wave in 2020. Uh, I just want to make I just want to make clear to our audience he's not prognosticating right now he's just telling what happened in history so we don't know what's <laughs> going to happen next. That's right. That's right. It is. It is. It history sometimes doesn't or shouldn't. Maybe we should learn lessons from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, but what, what was striking is how many parallels there were in terms of the debates and conversations. You know, what should be considered essential? Um, business owners very very frustrated about about being shut down in the ways they were shut down. They didn't quite do it exactly the same as us. Masks. Masks were everywhere then. Masks were required. They were actually much more militant about, um, uh, you know, I know there are plenty of folks locally who protested, you know, they don't want to wear their masks when they eat their waffles. Um, but but then it was masks were mandated and you would be fined and you could you were subject to jail time and they arrested people. Um, wow. December, uh, during the second wave, there were a couple, three days where over 100 people were arrested for failing to wear their masks in public. Um, so I, I, to me, I sort of did this quick scan. It was very, I, to me, it, it did inform, um, uh, speak to so much of what we were going on, what was going on now. And so I thought I would share it. And so I started writing these up. Um, uh, you know, they, they have some kind of comparisons to the present, but I try to keep them um, is focused on the past as they can, drawing a few parallels, but but often sort of leaving the the, the conclusions about the present for people to draw them themselves. Um, I wanted to get as wide a readership as possible, um, uh, and you know the, I, I think there I've certainly learned a lot from doing it um, uh, about Fresno, about it. You know, it's very different community, um, but also so many similarities, um, not only in terms of the way people responded. Um, uh, but uh, negatively, but also positively in terms of the, the healthcare workers. Um, uh, you know, as, as a part of doing this, I, I've, I've met um, some some people who are leading public health today here in Fresno, and, and some there's striking similarities between them and some of the folks who seem to, who were leading things in 1918. So, so yeah, it's been a really kind of interesting uh, side project. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I are you are you seeing similarities in terms of uh... Because, I mean, at least at the beginning of your articles in the early dispatches, there was this kind of like denial phase. There so how, denial phase. How, how long did that denial phase last? Uh, was it weeks? Was it months? Um, the denial phase, uh, it goes away. I mean, I suppose it depends on, on how I frame denial. Early on, there was definitely a, a denial phase that went away because, to be fair, their pandemic hit harder than ours has hit here. Uh, all told, between 1818 and 1919, um, we, we think at least 258 people die of the flu or pneumonia-related flu, which is a lot of people when you consider that there are only 45,000 people living in Fresno at the time. I mean, that's a good, I mean, that's a lot of folks. Uh, yes. So they saw, it was hard to be fully in denial in the way that I think people can sometimes be in denial today. Uh, part of that is we shut down, they did a good job compared to their peers, uh, Fresno did in 1918, but we and Fresno County and, and we in the United States shut down earlier, and I think in most ways more systematically than they did in 1918 or 1919. 
And so, that's communication-based you know, too, right? Absolutely, and public health, and we, and we understand how to deal with this sort of thing. I mean, they didn't even know that it was, that the flu was a virus at that point. Yeah. I mean, the medicine yes. was in a different place. Um, so they did well compared to their peers, but it was nothing compared to it, what it is today. I mean, in October and November, according to my calculations, 10% of the city was sick with the flu. And that's just what the reported cases. That's not the unreported cases. So uh, you couldn't deny it as much, but there still was plenty of denial. Um, or there was there was the kind of what I think we're, you know, not to get too much into today in our current situation, but but this this sort of cabin fever sense that regardless of what the numbers are, we just want to open the open the hell up. Excuse me. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, fine. Right? You know, that 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 mentality you see in 1918. Um, they are, uh, there are a lot more people pushing back um, it, when a second wave does hit. I'm just about to write about that actually in my, my uh, current dispatch, the, the 13th, I'm going to take up the beginning of the second wave really starting to hit. And that's where you see a lot of real resistance, um, uh, unwillingness to start wearing masks again. And they had taken away the mask restriction, although some health officials didn't like that. They had removed that. Um, uh, you see uh, both business owners threatening to sue the city if their businesses are shut down again. Um, pool billiards hall owners. Uh, business Furniture stores again. But businesses, owners pitted against one another, right? Why, why should that be open and not this open? Um, uh, you see a number of ministers very, very frustrated and, and protesting. Um, uh, uh, the fact that Christmas celebrations um, uh, might be uh, uh, not allowed and that people won't be able to worship on Christmas Day is very troubling to some ministers. And the pushback in the second wave ultimately leads the Board of Health to um, basically throw up its hands when the, the city doesn't back it. It recommends shutting down again, what they did, did for shutting down, which is shutting down certain sorts of businesses, implementing a mask rule. Um, the city resists that. The city doesn't want to do that under threat of lawsuit in some cases and a lot of public pressure. Uh, so the Board of Health resigns on mass in uh, December and for several weeks, several weeks. And then so basically there's no regulations for several weeks. And, um, you know, it's not good. At least according to my initial calculations, dozens will die in that period. Um, uh, hundreds, if not thousands, will get sick. Fortunately, uh, and luckily, the second wave um, uh, was not as severe as the first. The, the, the um, illnesses were not, were milder. So they say you don't see as, uh, they are fearful that it's going to be really, really bad, public health officials. And it's not as bad as they feared, even though people are still getting sick and dying. Um, but so I, I think, you know, the, the fact that, and I think what you see, and they couldn't deny it. People were dying. They knew that. Um, but they were, they didn't want to be sort of, they were frustrated and, and, and were kind of unwilling to, to respond in the way they had it during the first wave. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of people experiencing this when you're trapped indoors, you lose sense of rationality, lose sense of a lot of things. Yeah. You just want to get out. Um, and it's hard to listen to some guy with glasses telling you that you should really stay indoor, you know, when you haven't seen anybody die, you yeah. haven't felt sick personally. 
Um, you know, I've, I've watched a few of those movies like uh, Outbreak and uh, I forget what the other one was, you know, and it's, it's, it is haunting, you know, how, how similar things are. And it's, it's, we're so fortunate that, you know, the death rate is what it is. And, um, but it, it is a sign that like, I, I don't know. I mean, that I, hopefully we've learned something from this. Uh, that's the hope, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it feels like as, as we make people stay in longer, they're getting less rational about it. I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe I'm in a silo where I'm experiencing more of the not denial than you have been, but. Uh, oh no, I think there'd be, I think that there's plenty of denial going on right now. I, so I, I think they, there wasn't as much room for it then. And still they were willing to sort of throw caution to the wind. And I think that, I mean, our numbers are getting worse in Fresno, not getting better as we're opening up. I mean, yeah. that's certainly one of the things, I mean, that's one of the things that's hammered home by um, their public health uh, officer, a guy named Carlton Matson. He's con- every day in the newspaper and he talks about, I need to be at this rate, this rate before we do something, this rate. It's the same thing that, that, that Dr. Borja, our county public health officer, has been doing and, and reminding and, and re- regular reminders to the media here and to the public here is that, that you know, if we don't stay under this number, um, you know, in terms of uh, the spread of this virus, things are going to get really ugly really fast. And um, and I think that I think people lose sight. To be honest with you, I think people have uh, easily lose sight of by looking around and not knowing. I don't see a lot of sick people. Well, that's also because in an unprecedented fashion, we shut down society. Um, yeah. Right. Had right. we not done that, even for a few more weeks, we could have looked like New York looked. Um, and yep. so that, that makes me very fearful for the, you know, there, there, there very easily could be, we maybe even didn't have a first wave, right? Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean we won't actually have a second wave that is a real wave. Um, yes. uh, so that's, that's a lesson maybe we can learn from the past. Yeah, no, and that's, that's this, it's this kind of mental mindset that maybe people haven't been taught or, or just don't think about like the fact that an action, you know, whatever you do causes a reaction to that action. And you don't know what would have happened if you had not done that initially, had you not closed down society, you know, and, <laughs> but it's, it's, but it's I don't know. I think right? and, and, it and, is worth thinking about. And I don't know if you ever do this with your history students, but that, you know, we start, we call this a counterfactual. Yeah. Right? Counterfactual. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I, it's one of my favorite, it's all, it's sometimes kind of like slides into a circle and you never get anywhere, but, but I also think it can be really, really um, intellectually stimulating and helpful when you're thinking about the past and what, ha- what happens if this had happened in this way, right? You know, there could be a real difference. Um, you know, what would yeah. it, you know, uh, so, uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino and glorious bastards model right. for how to look at things. Yeah. Hitler early what happens, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, on our, let's, let's wrap up with our last topic and this is, you know, near and dear to my, to myself and probably you as well, but, uh, what, what this pandemic is going to do to education. Um, you know, I mean, there's a big, there's been a move in the last 10 years to move education online. You know, it started with Google slowly, uh, you know, yeah. s- slithering into our classrooms in terms of Google classrooms and making us dependent upon them. Um, and now, you know, given that a lot of parents are going to be uncertain about their kids' uh, health and safety coming back to school and schools having to fulfill state requirements to keep social distance between students, you know, there's a lot of schools that are going to maybe transition to online uh, yeah. more permanently and more generally. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm fearful and I, you can talk about this. Um, I, I personally see 
online education is uh, significantly less effective for instruction. Um, and from my point of view, uh, once I, I think that I, at least I hope that university and K-12 education doesn't break off into two groups, you know, an, an in-person group that gets a higher level of education and then this kind of not to denigrate this wonderful university, University of Phoenix style education yeah. where, you know, yeah. it's distance and there's, you know, we've all learned from MOOCs that people, when they don't have that in-person accountability, they just don't finish or complete things in any way that they do if they're yeah. in person. And so where, where do you see, uh, what do you see the next few years looking like and what have you heard uh, in, just in the rumblings about where things are going? Right. I mean, I, to be honest, I don't know what we're going to get. I, I can speculate, but from the rumblings, of the, the, any official rumblings I've heard uh, at Fresno State, let's say, um, are so focused on figuring out the fall and figuring out what we're going to do to during this COVID-19. I mean, we're not even, I'm currently, I'm chair of the department, so I'm currently building the schedule for the spring. We're not even talking about what it's going to like, whether we're talking about online or virtual or face-to-face. -face. We're just worried about the classes. We'll, we'll cross that um, bridge in, in September or October. Uh, so I don't know that anybody is really systematically thinking about how this is going to impact things long-term, but, but my speculation would be one, I, I, I like you, I don't think online learning is a helpful, minor to my mind, supplement to what we do in face to face in the classroom. It is never going to be a replacement for it. It's good for people who have all sorts of some challenges in terms of where they are in their lives and physically where they are. Um, so it can be used in a good fashion that way to supplement things and to, to provide opportunities to people who otherwise wouldn't have them. Um, uh, certainly there are people who are gifted online instructors, but, um, uh, I would argue that, yeah, 99 times out of a hundred, a face-to-face -face classroom, maybe with some online elements that are, that are a small part of it, uh, is far superior. Um, and if it were up to me, we would keep, no, have the online creep that, that does happen at, at university that has been happening at universities wouldn't, would, would not go any further. Um, so that, that, that's, that's one I worry that budgetary restrictions, they're going to come out of the you know, devastating economic effects of COVID-19, this pandemic, are, are going to incentivize administrators to incentivize instructors, um, professors, and departments to create more online sections. Um, you know, you've done it already. You know how to teach it online. We've trained you up on how to do it. Why don't we just offer half our classes online? I worry that that's going to happen. I, I, I'm not to say that universities are, you know, evil plotting doing this, but already at a place like Fresno State, we have a classroom crunch. It is very difficult. We have struggled to build, we get funding to build new buildings. We do not have enough classrooms. Um, there already um, uh, is already a push in the university to schedule classes at irregular times. Maybe we start teaching on Saturdays. Maybe we start teaching hybrid classes that allow us to have one class in a classroom on a Tuesday and an online Thursday, and then you have a different class in that same classroom on the Thursday and they're online Tuesday, and thus you've doubled your classroom capacity. There's already that sort of push, and I don't like it, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, 
Uh, I don't like it personally as an instructor, but I also think it's the wrong direction for the university to take, but it is an efficient thing. And I worry that they, the combination of experimenting with online education because we have to, 99 probably percent of our classes, every single class in the College of Social Science at Fresno State will be taught virtually in the fall. We do not have a single face-to-face. -face. There are a few face-to-face -face classes at the university, classes that require labs, classes that require some sort of face-to-face -face element for credentialing, but, but every single class in the College of Social Sciences, you know, it's hundreds and hundreds of classes, uh, is, is going to be online. So all of a sudden, all of us are going to be ex somewhat experienced doing this. And I do worry that, that once we don't have to do it because of a medical emergency, um, a health emergency, what are they, what are they, what is, are they going to try to push us even harder? They haven't forced us in any way to do this um, thus far. And I can say this as a chair of the department, I felt no direct pressure to create more online classes, but will that be true in five years? I'm worried about that. Uh, I mean, as you know, uh, as someone who studies history, crises can sometimes be opportunities for certain groups to you know, lay claim and stake to things, you know, right. and this might, you know, uh, I, I know that maybe you haven't been pressured to move things online, but, you know, there's been a pressure to make, you know, to increase the number of adjuncts, you know, to, to sure. make things to cut costs, you know, oh, and awesome. this is, this is the, this is the, you know, if, if you're a kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not imagining some guy twisting his mustache in the administrative office, you know, hatching a plan oh. or something, but you know, I'm imagining a bureaucrat going, Oh, great. An opportunity to save a bunch of money. And at the cost, like we said from the beginning of the students whose education will be inferior um, and their educational experience they'll get less out of it if things are all online ultimately. And yeah. so that's my, that's my worry as an educator. Ultimately. I totally agree. And um, what I hope is students will really make their voices heard. I mean, they certainly did to what to the degree that I was able to monitor it as a chair and as a professor in the spring, most students hated the transition to virtual learning. Yeah. They, they didn't, they, and and don't want to do this in the fall. I mean, they, they understand that you know you're in a pandemic. You you got to do what you got to do. But they would prefer to be in face to face classrooms. So I hope that that fact alone will will offset and undercut any effort to 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 make this a a, um, a permanent change to our approach to education. Because I think you're right. It would lead to tears. It would even more lead to emphasize, we already have tiered education in terms of the sort of ratio of students to instructor to student, but it would make it far worse. Yeah, absolutely. The only, the only online education that really is superior is podcasts. We all know that. Mm -hmm. um, and on that note, thank you for coming on and talking to me. I really appreciate it. Where can, um, I know you have some books uh, that are, uh, you've got two books on Amazon yep. uh, that people can find. Uh, yes. Where else, where can they find your uh, flu uh, pandemic articles? Uh, my, my flu pandemic articles live at a website called tropicsofmeta.com. Uh, and they're called Dispatches uh, from Fresno 1918 to 1919, following the Spanish flu pandemic in real time. Um, and yeah, you can find them there and um, uh, you can find more about me at Fresno State's Department of History website. Um, it's Ethan Keitel. Thank you. 
And I, I would recommend, uh, you know, I'm making my way through it, but I'd recommend uh, the book, uh, Denmark Vesey's Garden. Uh, yeah. It's your most recent book, correct? Denmark Vesey's Garden, yep. The Slavery yeah. and Memory in the Cradle of Confederacy. And it, it, if you're at all interested in this debate about monuments and memorials and historical memory, um, uh, yeah, it's a, that's what it's about. It's a co-author, a book I wrote with my wife and colleague, Blaine Roberts, and it's about how slavery has been remembered forgotten, misremembered, and debated for the last 150 years. And do the right thing, everybody. We're trapped in our house. Stop watching TV. Read a book. You'll be so, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, there's this, there's this great uh, talk that I, I'll end with this, this great talk, uh, TED talk about procrastination. Um, and the, the speaker talks about the dark playground, you know, a place where you're, you'd rather do something else more productive, but you go to the dark playground. And I think a lot of us have spent some time on the dark playground. And, uh, you know, I know we'd all just want to get out, but, you know, use your time, use your time to enrich your life, you know, ultimately. And uh, studying these subjects are important to understand uh, what's going on in the outside world. So um, we'll, we'll leave it with that. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks again. This was another episode of the Fresno's Best Podcast. Again, if you know anyone that you'd recommend uh, for us to interview, uh, we are always looking for new and interesting people that uh, need to be highlighted in our community. So uh, please send that to our Instagram. Uh, and then please, please subscribe to this so you don't miss another episode and give us a rating. It can really help us. Uh, the more ratings that we have, the more people are likely to push that play button. Until next time.